I would wake up every single day and I would start crying. And I was crying because the pain and the guilt that I felt was unbearable. And it's quite strange. I, I, um, I'd become quite spiritual at that point, but not because I was asking for help. But because I was angry, I felt like I was being tortured by God. I felt like my God was torturing me, you know, was, was, was making me wake up with this pain and suffering. All I wanted to do was be dead. I just wanted to die. I just didn't want to live anymore. And every day that I woke up, I re I'd remember it. I'd start crying and halfway do the crying, I would look up at the ceiling and just scream. Scream, why are you doing this? Why are you torturing me? And that went on for, for, for months. And it was unbearable. I mean, you can understand why. If, 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 if you're waking up every single day with the same feeling, the same hatred, this intense, agonizing pain, you know, deep, deep inside of you that you just you don't want to live anymore, you know, it's no wonder that you're, you're, you're turning to the drugs to, to get that relief. Because when I would get high, that would all be gone. Welcome to Seeking the Self podcast. Where we explore how we find and lose ourselves in the modern world. Didn't take medicine. We didn't go to doctors. It was like a baptism by fire. So very often we have to come in on our knees. Because if it was an easy journey, then what are we learning? I'm Dr. Aaron Bailick. And I'm Natalie Nahai. And this is Seeking the Self. What I do in my day-to-day -day work is facilitate people's experience of themselves. And that was really what drew me into doing a podcast like this, seeking the self. What does that mean? Because we know in the consulting room that the self isn't this unitary thing. There's no arrival at self. It's an exploration of something much wider. And it's a great privilege to be able to do that in a quiet space with one person and yet I believe very, very strongly that we need to be taking the concepts that we use in that consulting room to help people develop an understanding of themselves way out into the world. And the aim of this program is to enable the listeners to identify with the people that we're going to be speaking to um, so that it, they can use their stories to explore themselves further and to gain insight and to consider the meaning of their lives. I'm Natalie Nahai. I am an author of a book called Webs of Influence. And for the last five or six years, I've been exploring how our online environments shape our behaviors and the psychology of online behavior. And more broadly, how it is that we relate to other people and what it is that shapes the ways in which we move in the world. So one of the things that drew me to, to this idea of seeking the self of the themes that we're discussing is the fact that we can often find a lot of insight about how we are by listening to other people's stories and exploring some of the challenges that they've faced and how they've dealt with them. So things that we don't necessarily talk about in polite society or that we might not share on social media. 
what happens when we when we create a space for these difficult conversations and to allow ourselves to be immersed in someone else's experience what can we learn about what it is to be human and how to relate through the lives of others I say I was a bad person, but I wasn't a bad person that would kick you while you were on the floor. I just didn't give a shit about anybody. For our first story, we'd like to introduce you to Jack. My nickname was Jack the Hatchet Man. His story marks a journey through sex, drugs and religion to a place where he finds himself on the other side. You may find some of these themes distressing. If I look back at my life, I can see at a very, very early age where addiction has played up. And for me, it started, you know, getting in trouble at school and just that kind of buzz that you get from being doing bad. You know, not not terribly bad, but just, you know, being a naughty boy. And then when I was about nine, I was introduced by some older boys to alcohol and cigarettes and um you know i remember the first time i got i got drunk it you know it, it was as most addicts it was full-on it wasn't a couple of sips and and merry it was you know vomiting everywhere couldn't stand up the boys had to walk me home i remember it clearly lean me up on the front door ring the doorbell and leg it and i remember my mother opening the door and i would have been about nine and a half at this point and I remember her face because my father at this point was was quite an active alcoholic. Um, and I remember her face, you know, as I fell onto the floor thinking, oh my God, nine and a half, and he's, you know, he's drinking as well. That kind of continued, the, the, the drinking and the smoking continued um, for about a year. And then my parents and I moved to Los Angeles, and I would have been 10. And at that point, the, the, the school group that I was with... Um, they were incredibly conservative. They'd never smoked a cigarette. They'd never had alcohol. It was all about slumber parties and water balloon flights, fights. So, so they, they weren't interested in my, let's try drinking, let's have cigarettes. So I had a year of being a normal 10-year-old. It was very different to, to my previous years and my years after that. Um, but it was definitely the only year of my life where, you know, slumber parties and baseball and hanging out and riding bikes and going on hikes. I mean, it, it was a, it was a normal year, but it's probably the only year of my life that I've had that was on the normal kind of stereotypical normal side. After that, I went into junior high school. And that's where my kind of drug and alcohol really took off because I met older kids and I was able to get, uh, you know, other drugs uh, at that point i started smoking marijuana cocaine mushrooms lsd pcp i mean it was you know i, I was what you call a trash can I, I i you know if it was offered to me i said yes there wasn't a single drug i turned down uh, and it, and it you know it was quite clear to me in, in hindsight what it was i was starting to really have quite strong feelings towards men and i and i kind of had convinced myself was just a phase and that at some point I would stop. I remember at 14 having the thought that I was gay and it wasn't a thought that I wanted to 
to accept at all. I mean, I remember if anything came on the television that was remotely gay, I would do the normal, oh, gay, queer. No, I was even suspended from junior high school for gay bashing. It's complete madness, but it's what they say, isn't it? Those people that are, you know, the biggest bullies are the ones that are normally struggling with their own sexuality. But I just think a lot of it is we're permanently surrounded by homophobia and kind of, you know, this behavior, which I think kind of subconsciously makes me ashamed of who I am. I accept my sexuality. I am a gay man, um, and that will never change. But I struggle in loving who I am. And I think it's quite common. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there that do struggle with it. And there's not. I've got other friends that absolutely love being gay, and they wouldn't have it any other way, and they're super proud, and that's great for them. But there are a lot of people in the LGBT community that do struggle with this kind of internalized self, self-loathing, which I think is also quite common with, with addicts in general. We tend to, you know, dislike parts of ourselves. If I was off my face all the time, there was absolutely nothing well, it was it was suppressing the, the 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 gay in me basically it didn't exist it, you know i was as long as i was always higher always drunker always off my nut none of that kind of came into play and um you know my my drug and drinking use was so bad that my high school enrolled me into a drug program it was called spare south pasadena abuse response effort and it was basically a recovering addict who had this job and his job was to work with teenagers that had issues and he would take us to youth group and take us to MA marijuana anonymous meetings or NA narcotics anonymous or CA he would he would kind of get us involved and he would spend time with us and I was in this program with him and I and I you know I was still using while I was you know going to meetings um because I had no intention of stopping and I and I initially stopped I went to this youth we were going to a youth group and there was a there was a, a counselor there who kind of challenged me dared me to stay off the drugs and alcohol for seven days so from the time of that meeting to the time I came back. And I did it just so I could say to him, I've done it. That was the only reason I did it. And after about two or three days, my head was overwhelmed with feelings that I had not experienced because I was, as Pink Floyd would say, spent my life being comfortably numb. So when you go from you know avoiding life and running from your feelings by using drugs, alcohol, or sex addiction, whatever it is, and suddenly you come off that, it, it, I remember it being so overwhelming. And I remember just all these thoughts in my head. And I just, it was kind of at then that I realized I was gay. And I thought to myself, I don't want to spend my life being teased and denying who I am. And, you know what I mean? And being spit on and punched. And, and I just thought, because that's what was happening at that time in my life. I just thought, I don't, you know, this is, why would I want to, live my life you know I'm I'm 14 and I'm already miserable and um, I had a suicide attempt um, and, and, and it, to be honest it was kind of more of a, a cry for help than, than a genuine suicide attempt um, but I was ultimately then put into a, a drug rehab so I was 14 and a half when I was sent to a rehab in the US after being in the rehab for, for a week or so I got it like I, I you know once once I was in there and you're in this you know you're doing eight nine ten hours of therapy a day 
I accepted that I was an addict and alcoholic and I and I was ready to get sober and I did and I quit I quit drugs and alcohol and that that lasted for I think about 14 and a half years in retrospect I was just abstaining because I wasn't like I said I wasn't a good person you know I still had this kind of you know I didn't care about other people I was off the drugs and alcohol and my career obviously as I became a young adult, became very successful because I used that drive, that, you know, addictive drive inside of me to, to propel my career. But I wasn't well. I wasn't healthy. I was just what you would call a dry drunk. My, my parents were going through quite a big divorce at the time. My mother was really going through a tough time in, 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 in that divorce. It basically was just, the, the, it was the pressure, I think. it was, You know, there were some things said that really hurt me. And I knew, I knew there's one thing that will clear my head, and that's to get fucked. And um, so after 13 or 14 years, I jumped in my car, drove to a liquor store, bought a bottle of vodka, and just drank it like it was water. And sure enough, it was gone. Um, of course, it came back <laughs> when I sobered up. Then you know, after passing out, and it came back. But it, but it's, it's all you know. The drugs and alcohol are very effective. You know, they, um, they do relieve whatever's going on in your head. We are avoiding. We are escaping from reality. We are escaping from something painful or from painful thoughts or from, you know, it's it, it's escapism. You know, it, it's because we can't cope. We can't deal. You know, the average person goes through a tough time and they process it and they work through it and they, they come around with it. Addicts don't. We don't work through it. We just suppress it. And, you know, as long as you permanently stay intoxicated, it's fine. Crystal meth has always been in my life because it's, it's quite big in the gay scene. And I had a lot of friends in Los Angeles that used it. And what's funny is I look back and I was and I was so anti-drugs. You know, I didn't mind my friends drinking, but I was so... And I didn't mind if they were smoking weed. But I was so anti this crystal meth. And um, when I had had my relapse, you know, like most addicts, it was, a, it was gradual. You know, I started drinking a little bit and then I thought, oh, this isn't a problem. I've got this controlled. Let me... You know, I do miss my marijuana. Let me try the marijuana. And I tried the marijuana. And I thought, okay, I've got this under control. Okay, I've never had ecstasy. Let me try ecstasy. You know, you start progressively, your, 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 you know, your using progresses because you're convinced that you've got this under control. And I was going through a tough time with work at the time. Um, you know, I kind of got caught up in the, the U.S. housing crunch. And I was going to lose my, my dream house. You know, I pumped tremendous amount of money into this house and it was clear that the mortgage I'd had wasn't sustainable and long and short I was going to lose my house it, it kind of made me feel a bit like a failure you know I had such a successful career but yet here I am typical you know the, the loser the failure the reject I'm losing my house I'm losing this house and um, I met some guy on one of these you know these gay gay websites for sex he came round, and I didn't know at the time that he had crystal on him but after he was there he said i've got crystal 
um, do you want to try it? And I, and I hesitated. You know, at this point, I was already back on marijuana, alcohol. I was doing ecstasy. I hesitated. And then I just thought, fuck it. Let's try it. And it's a very powerful drug. Crystal meth is incredibly powerful. And, 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 and the, the, the way that it makes you feel sexually is so unnatural and so unrealistic. It's a feeling that no normal person would ever be able to obtain. You know, we have, we have, we have dopamine in our brain. And, and, you know, if you do crystal meth and GHB, these types of drugs, it creates 2,400 levels of dopamine. 2,400. The average sexual encounter is 240. So if you're used to the 2,400, the 240 doesn't register. And so it, it's, it's very appealing sexually because it, 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 it's like this euphoric state of kind of unnatural feeling that no normal person should feel. And so I dabbled with it a little bit. I think I had seven or eight times, and, and I realized it was affecting my job, so I, I stopped it, completely stopped it. What brought me back on it was my, um, my first partner, my first boyfriend, the first love of my life, passed away on Christmas Eve 2009. That changed me to the core. It opened up levels of guilt that I had never felt before. It was the first time I kind of felt guilt ever. I, I think I'd spent my life oblivious to, to, you know, things. But I kind of blamed myself for his death. And I also felt very guilty at the way I had treated him, which I think kind of is why he had given up on life and kind of abused. He, he died because he, he had HIV and he abused crystal meth and he basically wasn't taking any medicine. And so after five and a half years of being HIV without taking medicine and abusing his body, he just died, 27, very young. That guilt was unbearable. When I had found out the news, when my best friend had called me and said, you know, you're BJ, his nickname was BJ, Beetlejuice, uh, had passed away, I did the first thing I could, which was went straight to a liquor store, bought tremendous amounts of alcohol and got completely drunk because it was, it was there, it was available, and I knew it would do the trick and was able to find somebody local who wanted sex and also had crystal meth. So I had arranged, I said, listen, bring a lot. You know, I had arranged for, for, for him to bring us. I said, I'm going to buy some. From that point on, it, it was it was nonstop. It was every day, um, you know, and, and, it, and it became my crutch. I couldn't deal with the guilt. It's a bit like heroin and crack. These are, you know, escape drugs or drugs that kind of, you know, completely take you out of reality. And for me, you know, the crystal meth... If I just took it in small doses, it just kept me kind of completely numb.
I decided to spend seven days just drugs and sex and escorts and boys in a hotel. Um, and then my plan was to come, come back to London, spend time with my family. And in those seven days, two days before I was due to fly back to London, my mum called me and had told me that her best friend had passed away. And she was kind of like a second mother to me. She was kind of the one that helped my mother accept my sexuality. So she had a big place in my life. And it, it, it destroyed me. I mean, I remember hanging up the phone, didn't say anything, but just hung up the phone. And I remember, you know, I got on the pipe, you know, smoking more and more. And then the very next day, my mother called me again. Now, this is one day before I'm due to fly back to London. She called me to say, your grandmother's just passed away. And, um, you know, those losses kind of made my guilt reach more levels. I already had this guilt from my ex passing. But when they died, I just felt like I wasn't there for them. And I felt like I'd let them both down. And if I had chosen to go straight back to London, which I should have done, rather than going to L.A. to get on it and have a party with gay boys and crystal meth, I would have seen both of them at least one more time and had that time. But I didn't. And, and so those three guilts really just took over and, and was just the guilt was so unbearable that I had to permanently be, be high. I would wake up every single day and I would start crying, you know, intense crying, not dribbling eyes, crying. And I was crying because the pain and the guilt that I felt was unbearable. And that went on for, for, for months. And it was unbearable. I mean, you can understand why. If, 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 if you're waking up every single day with the same feeling, the same hatred, this intense, agonizing pain, you know, deep, deep inside of you that you just you don't want to live anymore, you know, it's no wonder that you're, you're, you're turning to the drugs to, to get that relief. Because when I would get high, that would all be gone. So the example that we're hearing right now is actually quite extreme. And I think it's worth remembering that when we go through difficult things, and all of us inevitably go through difficult things, often the instinct is to escape these, the awful feelings that we're having, even if it's just a sense of boredom or any kind of dysphoria, whether that's through binge eating or drinking or watching loads of movies back to back, not getting out of bed, or it could be even something as simple as checking your Facebook feed because you just want to get lifted out of whatever state you're in. That we use all these different means of distraction so we, we don't have to confront the reality of the difficulty and the feelings that we're experiencing. I would really echo that because I, I would kind of say like running away from the darkness, running away from the difficult things is it's really a defining human trait. I mean, we all do that and like we all like to numb out um, and we tend to do it at a variety of different levels, whether it's the nightcap, you know, after a tough day of work or the Netflix marathon across the weekend where you don't have to think about anything. All of these are on a spectrum. Um, and a certain a certain engagement with some of it is absolutely healthy. And it hits a point where it works against you, doesn't it? And I'm reminded of the original um, train spotting film, which has one of these moments of extreme running away. And for for those of you who haven't seen it, I don't think it's a spoiler, but, um, you know, the, the the young woman's baby dies in the squat that they're in and they wake up to her moaning and screaming, finding the baby that's, you know, finding this baby in the crib and they immediately go for a fix. They all know 
that uh, they got to go for the fix because they can't bear the pain. And from my experience as a psychotherapist, the the reason that people come see therapists is because they spent so much time running from the pain that they don't know what to do anymore. And it's really, and this is what we're hearing in the story, it's really about facing it, pushing through it with support to come to the other side. Because the more you run, the more you kick it under the carpet, the more it builds up there, the faster you need to run, the more you need to use to get away from that feeling. I think oftentimes also the difficulty is knowing when you're ready to confront that that demon that you're that you're confronted with you're accumulating all of this extra pain all of this extra guilt and shame and the rest of it it's either going to possess you or you have to possess it by by facing it and it sucks and it's harsh and it's scary but you got to turn your head around and you got to look right at it and and hold somebody's hand and 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 walk through it and that that is the way that went on for, for, for quite a few years. And if I did come off, it was kind of only because life was so fucked. You know, you, as addicts, we spend our lives building ourselves up and then destroying ourselves and building ourselves up and destroying us. And I've, I've, I've done that my entire life, built myself up and destroyed, built myself up. And it's, um, it's just very kind of ingrained. You know, I think a lot of addicts have this self-destruction that's kind of subconscious you know we call i call it the addict and i know the addict in me still today if i allow it will completely destroy my life that kind of went on i couldn't get more than eight months uh and to be honest the truth of it the reason i couldn't get more than eight months was i was still convinced that i could control my drinking and my using in some way shape or form you know i was convinced and if you're convinced that you can still control it then you don't think you have a problem and you don't really want to quit until finally I kind of had a, you know, a, a, a moment where I kind of didn't have an option. You know, I was kind of pushed into a corner initially about getting sober and, and I didn't want to quit at that time. But I think after about a week and a half of being off of it, I had this this, you know, what we call a moment of clarity and it, and it was very intense and it was. I'm an addict, and I've always been an addict, and I will always be an addict. The difference is I can choose to live my life as a recovering addict, or I can choose to live my life in active addiction. And those are choices that I now make on a daily basis. But understanding that was 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 like a rock hitting me in my head, you know. And I think, you know, I had so many years of relapsing, you know, that... that it's quite simple. Once you just, and, and you know, the 12-step the, the program is very basic. You know, you admit that you're an addict and that you're powerless over drugs and alcohol or sex addiction or gambling or whatever. You admit that you're powerless. That's the first step. And for me, it was just that. It was admitting that I am an addict and, and understanding that and accepting that and knowing that that's always going to be the case. I mean, if I was to hit the crystal meth pipe or smoke a joint or drink a glass of vodka within a matter of weeks I'd be at full speed because it will absolutely destroy you if you allow it 
And if you're able to kind of control it and kind of harness that energy, you can be so successful. And I think, you know, you see quite a lot of people in these in the, these rooms. They come in broken and destroyed and bankrupt and, you know, homeless and no career and they've ruined their reputation and they get sober and in a relatively short period of time they put that drive back into whatever it is and they become very driven and very successful and you see it a lot in the rooms you know people come in and they suddenly rebuild their whole life the plus side of being an addict is that if you learn how to kind of harness that energy that drive inside of you, you you can be successful at whatever it is that you want to do, you know, because you've got that passion inside of you. In the three and a half years, I, I don't think I've even contemplated it once. I mean, I've not had a tremendous, you know, the three and a half years has been quite easy. You know, my career is, is on the up. I've got great relationships with my family, with my friends, you know, things are going amazingly well. But when there have been a few challenging times, and I would normally revert to drugs or alcohol to, to, to deal with them. It's not been an option because I know where it will take me. The difference is, like I said again, today, every single day, I have to remind myself and accept that I'm an addict. And so it's just, it's not been an option. That's not to say that, that, it, that it won't, but I'd like to think that as far as I've come, it becomes not an option. You know, it's just, I just, I can't imagine it. I mean, it'll be throwing my life away. You know, people say to me, "The do, are you the old Jack? Do you have the old Jack? And to be very honest with you, there's very little of me today that I would consider as the old Jack. I'm almost like a completely and utterly new Jack, like a distant cousin almost, if that makes sense. Today, and it's only been in the last three and a half years, and it's and it's progressed over the last three and a half years, I am a good person. I work hard at trying to do the right thing. I am careful at how I behave and the decisions that I make and how they will impact people. And I really, really try to see life from other people's kind of points of views and, and walk in their shoes. And... Um, you know, so it's kind of like I found a new Jack, if if that makes sense. It, you know, there's very little of me that I can relate to, you know, the first 38 years of my life. And that's kind of amazing. It, it, it's been amazing. And I, it's simple. I try to make sure when I go to bed at night, I lie my head on the pillow and I think, today's been a good day. That's the fine. The find is, you know, it's, it's, I have a new way to live and I'm not perfect and I'll never be perfect and I'll always get things wrong, but it's about how you kind of recover from them and how you learn from them. And I think that's, you know, what I found is I found maybe this was the real me and it was just hidden before and it was lost before. So maybe I found the real me or maybe it's a new me. I don't know, but I do know what I have today is is special and today I am proud of who I am and, and, and who I've become and I hope to continue to, you know, try to be proud and, and, and do the right things in life.
It's interesting when we're talking about seeking the self and I was sort of conscious of this when we were naming uh, the podcast, that it, it's not something which is a static form or an individual form like you've already mentioned, but rather it's it's a fluid conversation between parts, each of which have a particular role to play. And it, I suppose the, the seeking of the self, maybe the goal is to integrate and give voice to these parts in a way that we feel like we're able to thrive. Um, and so that you can be rebellious when you need to be, you can be a bit hedonistic and wild, but then step in when you need to step in and behave in a much more responsible and healthy way. And finding out which aspect to turn up the volume on, if you think of it as like an EQ or an orchestra, for instance, mm -hmm. go, right, actually, I really need the strings a bit higher and louder in this part to be able to conduct yourself almost in an orchestral way. Um, so that you're drawing on all of your resources in the most appropriate way, that finding a way to that point is probably what many of us are striving for. I think that's right. And, and, it, and it brings up questions about what a, you know, about personality and about capacities, because um, you can't be good at, you can't be as good at strings as you are at woodwinds, as you are at percussion, you know, if you want to use that orchestral metaphor. And Carl Jung had, you know, he, he thought uh, when he's talked about personality types, he talked about the superior traits and inferior traits. This is where we get extroversion and introversion and that kind of thing. You might be more superior at being extrovert. So you're never going to be as good. And if you're an extrovert, you're never going to be as good at introverted stuff as you are as extroverted stuff. But it doesn't mean you can't develop that. If you're really good at playing the drums, you know, you might be really crap at playing woodwinds. But if you keep practicing, you might be all right. So in a sense, that's, that kind of includes things like whether you're assertive or not, whether you're a people person or not, whether you're good at maths or not, um, to acknowledge that we have deficits, to accept those deficits, to also accept that we can't bring them all up to the same level, but to avoid the deficit because we have some sort of shame about it or we don't want to show other people what that is, there's a real serious consequence to that. So we really have to be compassionate about those inferior parts of our own personalities. So what I found is a new person. I kind of would have aspired to be maybe in my past. And I think for me, that's the find. The find is, you know, it's, it's, I have a new way to live. I'm Dr. Aaron Balick. And I'm Natalie Nahai. And this is Seeking the Self. <laughs>